Um, if you would turn your Bibles uh, to Psalm 137, uh, we continue as we spend the summer in the Psalms and uh, hitting highlights and difficult ones um, so that you know what to do with the Psalms. So Psalm 137, if you don't have a Bible, there's some back there as well as pens, um, the outlines, I mean your bulletin, and so if you need a pen or Bible, feel free to grab one back there. Uh, but we will uh, read Psalm 137. This is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Psalm 137, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, on the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's songs in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, Let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem. How they said, lay it bare, lay it bare bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall be those who repay you with what you have done to us. Blessed be he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we find things in your word that surprises us, that shock our ears. And so I pray this time as we look at this passage, Holy Spirit, move in me to be able to make your word plain, to to rightly divide it for them, that they would understand what to do with this. What does it mean? We need your help, O Lord. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I wonder if you ever get angry. Do you ever see great injustice and become furious? What if that injustice was done to you? Someone you loved, or you're just looking at it in the world and just horrified by it. If the Psalms really do cover all of human emotions, can it help with our white hot anger at injustice? We come today, as, as you already heard, to maybe the hardest Psalm to embrace. If you read the Old Testament carefully, you come across passages like this that are jarring to you. There are a number of them. This is one of them. Now, some solve this problem by saying God in the Old Testament was mean. Jesus in the New Testament is nice. That is not true, but that's the way they try to solve it. We'll unpack that more later. Is this psalm of any practical use to us today? Or is this just an ancient artifact for the old Jews? I think we tend to fall off one of two slopes. So imagine a um, hill line, right? And you can fall off the left or the right or walk on the, the crest of it. So to the one, we can fall off and accuse the, or assume that Christianity, um, everyone should just be happy all the time. Just put on a happy face. That's one, that's, that's not where you should go. You can fall off the other, and it is to, to swear vengeance. Forget, forget whatever God says. I'm going to get even for what was done to me. Both are errors. 
So let's look. You see on page seven our outline, where should we be? How do we respond to great evil against God's people? That's the question we're answering this morning. From this passage, we see three answers. Don't put on a happy face. First, second, pray for God's mercy. And third, pray for God's justice. Now, I want to give credit where credit's due as we begin. Um, One of my seminary professors, Richard Belcher, wrote a fantastic book that was very helpful to me. It's called The Messiah and the Psalms, Preaching Christ from All the Psalms. And he included this one. That was of help. And I had my sermon done really early this week, um, done on Wednesday midday. But then yesterday, I listened to a Tim Keller sermon on this passage. So then I wasn't done anymore. So um, I have to give credit. There are a few pieces that were added last night uh, that Tim Keller um, was helpful on. Okay, let's begin with the first. Um, Don't put on a happy face. Look at the first verse again. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remember Zion. Now, I don't know if this has happened to you. You walk up on a conversation right in the middle of it, and someone says something that's quite surprising to you. You have no context. You have no idea what they're talking about. And you're like, what, what in the world is going on here in this conversation, right? I've had that experience. I'm sure you have. Or a different one, you're taken out of, you're, you're quoted way out of context, right? Someone says, did you hear what Nathan said? You're like, well, if you heard the whole conversation, it, it actually made sense, right? I don't know if that's happened to you. So both of those, that's kind of what's happening to us. We just showed up and we just picked up our Bibles and started reading. And it's in the middle of a context. There's a historical situation going on and it would sure help if we knew it because this was kind of jarring. Okay, why are they, the Jews, sitting down by the waters of Babylon? Well, if you know Jewish history, the Jews were in the promised land. Everything was great. But God kept warning him, you are not obeying my law. If you do not obey my law, I will kick you out of the land. I will send you into exile. Well, the Jews, as you might know, they didn't listen. And they didn't listen, they listened, they prophet after prophet after prophet. And finally, God did it. He sent the Babylonians in, and they took them into exile. Well, the Babylonians weren't known for being kind people. We'll look at that more in a little bit. They were cruel, evil people. And they were awful to the Jews. And so now the Jews, some that survived, that weren't killed, are now in Babylon, and they're weeping. And we'll find out more. This is far worse than the Trail of Tears, if you know of that tragedy from our own American history. The Jews have good reason to be weeping. Look at verses 2 to 4. It says, on the willows there, we hung up our lyres. Kids, that's an instrument. They hung up their lyres. For there our captors, so the Babylonians, require of us songs, and our tormentors mirth. Kids are like laughter. They want them to be happy. And they say, hey, sing us one of those songs of Zion. Now this is just cruel. Because the songs of Zion say, our God is the greatest. The God of Israel, there is none other. No one is greater than Yahweh. That's kind of hard to sing as a Jew now in Babylon. You see how cruel that is? Yeah, sing us about how great your God is now that we've defeated you and you're here as our slaves. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. He says, how shall we sing the Lord's songs in a foreign land? I mean, the only way they could have sung it is to do something. They would have to rip apart the meaning from what they're doing. 
Now, we actually do this many Sundays. I even am guilty of this at times. We rip apart meaning from what we're saying. Our hearts actually have no clue what we're saying. We're just following whoever's up here singing. I'm guilty of that sometimes. I work hard not to do that. But we, it's easy to disconnect. The only way you can sing joyful songs when you're in exile is just to sing meaningless words. You see the situation they're in. This is a miserable situation. Now then, they now call down curses on themselves. Look at five to seven. What they're saying is, you see, if, almost like an if-then statement. If I do this, let this happen to me. Look at verse five. It says, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. It's saying, if I forget the real meaning that we aren't in Jerusalem anymore, let my hand stop being able to play. Verse 6, let the t- my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. If they remember, they will be sad. Right? Said so if we forget all that, may we lose our ability to play or to sing. So you see what's going on, and if we forget, I mean, I don't. I was trying to think of some way to explain this. This is the best I come up with. Imagine going to a funeral of a close, close friend, and then afterwards they have a little reception afterwards, and you're like, "Hey, let's let's do some line dances," and you're like having a party. You're like, "Whoever just died, they must not have been that important to you. If you've so quickly forgotten them, you're ready to move on and party." That's a little like this situation. Like they're like, ah, just move on. Just sing your happy songs. Forget about Jerusalem. You're in Babylon now. That is the situation. Many, this is, this what we're talking about is actually an obstacle to many people becoming Christians. Here's what I mean. Many people think that the church is like a happy place where you need to like come in and pretend like everything's great. And they're like, you know, that's not my life. Like I live a gritty life. And it's really hard. And like you people just seem so laughy happy, right? And that's not reality. Unfortunately, many Christians kind of have torn apart reality with the actual world they live in from what they do here. We try not to do that. It's easy for all of us to do. And if people think that the Bible is just this nice book full of nice, sweet Bible stories, where Jesus with his nicely trimmed flowing beard with his flowing robes is sitting on this little grassy knoll with wildflowers. And he's sitting with children telling Bible stories. You all have the Bible. You kids have Bible story books. It looks probably like that, right? Now Jesus might have done that once or twice, but there's also a lot of other stuff in this book, isn't there? It actually addresses all of life. This psalm obviously is not one of those, is it? These people were suffering terribly, and they're singing about it. This is actually their songbook. This is their hymnal, the Psalter, the, the Psalms. Okay, so if any of you struggle with anger, there's some really helpful things in this passage about anger. The first is this. Own your anger. The psalmist does. He owns his anger. He's not pretending anything different. I mean, he might have gotten a beating for this. I mean, the Babylonians, they're pretty cruel when they said they wouldn't sing. I don't know what consequence. We don't know what happened. He says, no, I refuse to sing. I'm not going to sing happy songs as I mourn. 
He owns his anger. Kids, I don't know if you've ever been bullied. Have you been bullied by somebody over a long period of time? It's awful. If it's happened, I'm sorry. It shouldn't, that should not happen. You can relate a little bit. Adults, if you've ever suffered a terrible crime that's been done to you or someone you loved, whether someone you or someone you know was raped, you understand what it is to suffer greatly. This passage is for people who've suffered greatly. But before we unpack this psalm further, there's actually something else we need to talk about. If it hasn't already, I'm going to bring a bunch of things into your mind from the New Testament. Because you're like, well, what do I, how do I line this up with all these other things? The New Testament told me to love my enemies. This doesn't sound like love my enemies. Okay, so our second point is this. Pray for God's mercy. We're going to leave our passage. We're going to come back to it in a second. Jesus said in Matthew 5, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your, okay, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus also said in Luke 6, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Jesus from the cross, you might remember, said in Luke 23, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. The martyr Stephen said similar things. Acts 7, he's being stoned. He falls on his knees. He cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. So we have all this clear New Testament teaching, right? Love your enemies. Now, little did Stephen know who happened to be there. You remember who was there when he was being stoned? Where he's falling down, rocks are flying at him, and he's praying, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. And there's a young man overstanding by a pile of coats that everyone, he's guarding the coats while everyone stoned Stephen. God answered Stephen's prayer for that man was who? Saul, who became Paul, right? The great apostle Paul, the great enemy of the church. God answered Stephen's prayer for mercy for his enemy. Now, this is not just a New Testament idea. One of my goals this morning is for you to see continuity between the New Testament and the Old Testament. If you're in Sunday school, you're learning about Jonah, right? Many of you aren't in Sunday school. You're still familiar. I recommend it. It's a great thing to do. Sunday morning at 9 a.m. But Jonah 4. Jonah should have been praying for mercy. But you might remember he had a really hard heart toward the Ninevites. At the end of the book, sorry, spoiler alert, but they'll have forgotten by the time you get to it. It'll be all right. Jonah 4 says this. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Why is Jonah so upset? It displeased him exceedingly. He was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Why is he so upset? Because God showed mercy to his arch enemies. Jonah should have been praying. One of the lessons of the book is he should have been praying for their mercy. He should have been showing them mercy as a prophet to go to proclaim to them. But he didn't. He had a hard heart. We see in the Old and the New Testament. Mercy for enemies. So there you go. There's your dilemma. 
how do you reconcile these things? Do I love them? Or do I, do I pray this? Do I pray a curse for them? That brings us to our third point. Pray for God's justice. Look at verse 7. Okay, so now he shifts the psalmist. And what is he doing? He's praying. He says, remember, O Lord. Who's he addressing? Yahweh. Remember, O Yahweh. Against the Edomites. Who are the Edomites? They're the neighbors who hate the Jews. And so while the Babylonians are coming in, they're gloating. You find this in Obadiah. It's a one-chapter book. It's real short. So there he is. But it's talking about the Edomites gloating. What does they say? Lay it bare, bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. Right? They're cheering from the sidelines as the Babylonians come in and just massacre and brutalize the Jews. Look at verse 8 and 9. So he says, remember. Now, when the Old Testament says remember, it's not just like, hey, God, I think you forgot. Right? It's remember is an action. When God says, I'm going to remember my covenant, it means I'm going to act on my covenant. So he says, God, remember and act is what's implied. Verse 8, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed be he who repays you with what you've done to us. He's calling for restitution. Kids, you know that word? Restitution? It's a big word. Good vocab word, restitution. It means that the punishment should meet the crime or should match the crime. Right? So that's, that's what it means, restitution. If you steal something, you need to give that thing back or something equivalent. So he says, God bring justice. Blessed is he who repays to Babylon what they have done to us. We want justice, God, is his cry. Verse 9. Now this is the hardest, I know. But we need to look at it. Blessed shall be he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Now what in the world does that mean? Well, if, you had study, if we study Babylonian history, the Babylonians were very cruel. And so they did this to the Jews. They smashed Jewish babies and killed them. And so what, are the, what is he calling for? He's calling for justice. He said, God, they have war crimes that they have gotten away with. Please, God, bring justice. Repay to them what they have done to us. Now we're back to anger. We actually learned something else. It's going to be surprising to you. He actually limits his anger. Now I know that doesn't seem like that to you. Here's how he limits his anger. What he doesn't say is, I'm going to get vengeance. I'm going to go kill them all. What does he do? He turns to God. He says, God, you get justice. I'm not going to get justice. God, remember what's been done to us. May they be repaid for what they've done to us. Does that make sense? They limited their anger. You should limit your anger. How do you limit your anger? You pray your anger. Okay, so first you own your anger. Be honest about it. Don't put on a happy face and pretend that everything's great and just peachy when it's not. Limit your anger and turn it to God. Wrestle with God about your anger. What's been done to you, what you've been done to others, what you see. I mean, if you look at the news, you can be hor- you're just horrified. I am too. How, God, can you let this happen? Wrestle with God about it. Often religion, even Christianity, teaches us wrongly to stuff your feelings. That's not right. Now, the society says, no, we need to explore your feelings and just 
you know, they are reality and, and live in them, right? Well, no, that's not really healthy either. We acknowledge them and we take them before God and leave them there. How can you have peace? It's by giving them to God. Scripture even says that cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The way you do that is prayer. Even prayers for justice. Even prayers for justice. Now, another reason this is hard for us to digest is most of us, some of you might be exceptions, live very easy lives. We are relatively safe and comfortable. Most of us are not fearing for our lives. We're not having war atrocities happen on our land to our families, in our church. But this isn't hypothetical for believers in China, the Middle East, parts of Africa. A seminary professor from Gordon-Conwell estimates that over 70 million Christians have been martyred over the past two millennia. 70 million. What's even more staggering is that by their study, more than half of those have been in the 20th century. Okay, let that sink in for a second. Over 2,000 years, 70 million, more than half of those have been in the 20th century. Over the past 20 years, there have been almost 2 million Christians killed. You see, this is not just a thing of history. It's not just the Babylonians who are cruel. I think this is a great moment for us to lean on a brother who suffered firsthand. Mirslav Wolf, a Croatian theologian, he saw much suffering in the 80s and 90s, suffering between the Croats and the Serbs. And so Wolf, from his firsthand experience, from brutal brutality that he saw, he said this. Listen to this quote. My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with man in the West. But imagine speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered and then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have been brutally murdered. Your point to them is, you should not retaliate? Why not? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take up the sword. If God were not angry at the injustice and deception and did not take a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. He goes on, he says, if God will not put things right, you will feel more obligation to take up arms yourself if God's not going to make it right. Does that make sense? There is a need when you've suffered great injustice to be able to have something you can use to cry out to God for justice. Psalm 137 is just such a thing. Now I want to pause that for just a second. 
Think about this. I don't know if you knew in World War II, in over on the front lines, they would sometimes send, like they'd have a concert for the soldiers. A happy concert. They'd watch a funny movie. Why would they do that? You just give the guys a break. Like everything, there's so much bloodshed. Like give them a break, just something light. Now I want to contrast that with many vets that come back and they're offered counseling as they try to process what they went through, what they saw. Now is the Bible more like the concert or the funny movie or more like the counseling? Many think and actually kind of enjoy, if you only read certain sections, you can kind of believe the first. It's a really clean, sterile, nice book with Bible stories about Noah and the flood and nice little stories, which of course even that, don't think about that too long. That gets pretty gruesome too. But no, it's more like the counseling, right? It actually helps you process the really intense things of the world we live in. It matches the world you live in. So don't be shocked when it says shocking things. They're shocking things everywhere. You need something that is honest, even about the ugliest parts of our world. You saw the title of this sermon, Is Christianity Nice and Sweet? Well, you probably don't think so after reading this, this chapter. No. The Bible is well-matched for our white-hot anger at great injustice. This psalm is called an imprecatory psalm. That's a mouthful. Imprecatory. It means cursing. It means to invoke judgment or calamity or curses upon one's enemies. Now, is this just an Old Testament thing? No. Did you know that's in the New Testament? Paul curses those who preach another gospel. Go look at Galatians 1. Martyrs call for their blood to be avenged in Revelation 6. Jesus uttered curses against the the, um, Pharisees. Matthew 23, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Now, hell is worse than anything we saw in Psalm 137. We just can picture Psalm 137 and we can't picture hell. And so we think this sounds worse. Jesus' words were stronger. You know, even the Bible ends, John says, come, Lord Jesus, come. Do you know that is even an implicit prayer for judgment? What's he going to do when he gets here? He is not coming on a donkey. Jesus is coming back on a war horse, and the blood of his enemies will flow in the streets. No little hill with wildflowers, kids. Justice is needed, and it will come. It will come fully. It will come fully when Jesus comes back. Now there's a little, look at that verse in verse 80. He said, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. And the Old Testament is a little bit simpler. The good guys were the Jews. They're the people of God. Who's God going to judge? Well, everybody else. Right? They're all the Gentiles. So you could say the Babylonians are doomed to be destroyed. Ah, they're probably almost completely right. Now, for us, can we say that? Well, no. You aren't even from one nation, right? We are now, there's no people of God anymore. We're from all nations around the world. So now you really never know. Is your enemy doomed to be destroyed? Or is he Saul to become Paul? You don't know. So as we wrap up this morning, if you're still confused about this psalm, do I, do I pray for mercy or do I pray for justice? I'm kind of confused. Let me leave you with this final thought. 
the Jews watched their babies ripped from their mother's arms and dashed. They prayed to God to bring justice and retribution. But I want you to think about someone else other than just the Jews. I want you to think about God the Father. God the Father had his son willingly ripped from his arms and dashed. The death of Christ is far worse than anything depicted in Psalm 137. Christ did it willingly. He knew he was to be dashed, but he went willingly because of love, love for you and for me. And so Jesus, on the cross, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus was dashed to bring mercy. So if you are furious about injustice, don't stuff it. Don't pretend like it doesn't exist. Don't put on a happy face. Please do these three things. Own your anger. Limit your anger by praying your anger to God. You can pray Psalm 137. God, I cry out for justice. Maybe what's been done to me be done to them. And justice will come. That's not an empty prayer. You read, if you read the whole Bible, justice will come. No deed ever done. There will not be justice for it. Do you believe that? The Bible says so. You can have confidence. You cannot have vengeance and bitterness and hate toward those who have sinned against you because God will bring justice. But please don't stop there. Much of what I've said could be said before Christ, but this part can't. You know the rest of the story. You know that Jesus was dashed for his enemies, and it's us. We are the enemies of God, and he has brought us in as his sons and daughters. So don't stop there. Continue with the rest of the story, and you maybe can even get to the point after you pray for, their, for justice to pray for mercy. As you have received, you have received great mercy, far greater than any crime done to you is the crime we've done to God. Here's any sin could be done to me. My sin to God, who is infinitely perfect, is far greater. As you understand that, you will be able to begin to move toward mercy. So you can start with justice, but may it end with mercy. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you that you're a just God that nobody's getting away with anything, but that we don't have to hold on to it, that we can let go of what's been done to us, done to ones we loved, done what we see in the world that is just evil. Because you're watching, you're gonna bring justice. You will come back, you promised, and we trust you. But Lord, I pray that as they own their anger and limit their anger and pray their anger, that you would get them to mercy. Lord, help us understand the mercy that you've offered to us in the cross. And we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.